0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I have a lot in common with my guest, Owen Band, who is actually 20 years my senior. We went to the same high school in Miami. We had the same rabbi who wore the same toupee. We both got great grades, stretched our finances to go up north for college, and both set our sights on grad school at Harvard. But since graduating near the top of his college class in 1977, Owen has turned fallen angel. His life dominated by drugs, crime, poverty, illness, and a fixation on how his American dream went so wrong. Now 60, Owen has struggled for years to put thought to paper. Hospitalization and disability has lately made that impossible. So, I hooked him up with a snazzy USB microphone and instructions to download Skype and tell all. In honor of Passover, Full Disclosure presents The Wicked Son. Owen Bann, thank you for joining
1: us from Manhattan. Hey, Robin. Nice joining you. I never <laughs> knew Rabbi Lipschitz wore toupee, but I guess that's good to know. Okay, gosh,
0: you had to out the four guys' name, too. And the dearly departed, no less. He was a, he was a good rabbi. He a tried to teach rabbi. us well. Uh, but it, it speaks back to um, the commonality we had. It was really a working-class environment in North Miami Beach, and a lot of people moved from up north. And similarly, your parents... Uh, came down from New Jersey. I think when you were 12, I was reading some of the thoughts that you wrote a few years ago, and you had set your sights on being a uh, a top macher at North Miami Beach High School. You were on the wrestling team. You were a debater, and uh, take me back to graduation. What was it, 1973, 74, and 1973.
1: you're thinking you wanted to go to college. Wanted to go to college. However, in February or March, I believe, I had my first major attack of Crohn's disease. Uh, I was hop- hospitalized uh, locally at Ma- uh, Mount Sinai in Miami. Uh, I was misdosed, uh, diagnosed a couple times, uh, but I was told, "Look, you have a chronic illness. We don't know much about it. Uh, you might have to live your life accordingly. Uh, maybe it's not a good idea to go away to school. You know, be on a restricted diet, and maybe become an accountant or something you can work on from home." So the idea of Crohn's, for those who aren't familiar with it, is that
0: you pretty much have to be near a restroom constantly. Uh, a, a lot of variables can throw you off. Added anxiety can can cause intestinal distress. Um, why,
1: what was that? What was the thinking in the early 70s? Well, back then, a lot of thinking was that it was a disease caused by stress. Uh, we know now that it was probably passed on from my grandparents to me. Uh, but it's a lot more than just needing a restroom like you hear on TV nowadays. I had sections of my intestine cut out. I had large areas of scar tissue. Uh, I wound up probably with over 75 hospitalizations going through the emergency room with chronic pain. Uh, that's probably the worst part about the disease.
0: But kicking back to your, you know, your, your senior year, there's this great photo of you on the wrestling team at NMB, at North Miami Beach High. You had this vitality and this vigor too, and it wasn't
1: stopping you from setting your sights on going to college up north. No, it, it, it wasn't at that point. I mean, the difference between when that picture was taken in November, uh, before graduation, and by graduation, my w- I had lost nearly 30 pounds. And I hate to use the description that I look like someone out of a concentration camp, especially since we're that close to Passover. But it was like day and night. So how Uh, did you do it? How did you pack your bags? How did you go? What did your parents tell you? Oh, my parents at first were concerned. They said, why don't you stay at Miami-Dade? They were afraid to see me go. Um, You know, I was accepted to five different colleges up north, uh, Georgetown, Columbia, uh, Emory, actually in Atlanta. And uh, Boston University offered me a full scholarship. Uh, They had a strong debate team. I went to Boston. I liked Boston. I'd actually met a girl up there, which was probably the main reason I chose Boston University. And I set my sights on leaving home.
0: So you did that, and you came from a working-class background like me. I just remember my father telling me, you just concentrate on wherever you want to go to school, and if I have to take out a second mortgage, I will, or if I have to ask a family member for a loan uh, was there any sort of, um, you know, I, I think you write right that your your dad and mom were a lot more pragmatic with you, especially after you got notice of your medical condition. Like, um, did did they agree to backstop you financially? Were you on your own kid if, if you did maybe accept the offer to Columbia?
1: Well, if I went to Columbia, it would have been work-study, which I was a little worried about because of my health condition. Uh, Boston Uni- University offered me a full scholarship, uh, the full ride, including dorm, meals— Uh, and I had an older brother at the time in college, which was putting a strain on my family, even though he was going to a state university. So I thought about the financial situation, and even though I probably would have liked Georgetown or Columbia more, uh, Boston University became more pragmatic for me. You did thrive at Boston University, even though you write in some of your notes
0: that, you know, there were times where you'd have to struggle, you wouldn't know where you'd come up with, uh, money for meals or, uh, you know, certain housing things, incidentals, um, uh, travel. Uh, you had to kind of scrape around to do things. But you managed to focus on your academics, and
1: you were an A student. You were a, an A-plus student. You know, uh, 4.0. When I got to Boston, you know, I mean, it was an expensive city. Even though they paid for dormitory meals, uh, my dad really didn't contribute much uh, to what I can actually live on. So yeah, there were times at the end of the month, especially if I splurged on a date, that my friend Gary and I would go out and buy a bag of day-old Dunkin' Donuts. And that's how we'd survive for a day or two.
0: Did you live this like a bohemian? I mean, were you, were you, were you bummed about this? Were you angry about this? Because certainly your grades weren't suffering. Uh, you, you, you did establish yourself as a writer, as a debater as a person who really took advantage of the best of Boston. um, I'm fast forwarding you to 1976, 1977, and in fact, your record was so
1: good that you set your sights on Harvard Law across the river. Right. Uh, You know, I adjusted well academically. Socially, that was another issue. I was on a lot of prednisone by 76, 77. uh, For your Crohn's disease? For my Crohn's. And you know, there was, you know, Boston University, the undergraduate population. Uh, it was there were a lot of rich kids, rich, I hate to say rich Jewish kids from the Five towns in Long Island. And I didn't fit in. I was pretty much an outsider. Um, I knew, as my parents believed, that if I studied and worked hard, great things could be accomplished. And I believed that at the time. Yeah, but Owen, we didn't fit in with a lot of the guys in high school, You know, 20
0: years apart, our graduation. But it was the same thing in the parking lot. There were the rich kids, some of the older money people, some of the people whose families, you know, there was always a divide. The 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 first-generation Jewish immigrants, the second-generation Jewish right. immigrants, the working-class people. Um, there were people who could afford a car at age 16 and others who had to, you know, take the bus and, and mooch a ride until they went to college. Um, so, but it was even more so jarring for you in Boston?
1: It was, uh, because I found people in North Miami Beach that were like me. They were jocks. Uh, you know, they, our parents weren't in, in a lot of cases in Skylake lawyers or doctors. I hate using the stereotype. Uh, but I, I, you know, I was relatively happy in high school. Uh, I liked what I did. I liked my friends on the wrestling team. I liked... Friends on the debate society, uh, and I fit in. You know, Boston is the first time I was away from home. I didn't know what to expect. Um, it was a strange journey for me, and you know, I found I love to read. You know, besides the Crohn's, I mean, I had a speech impediment where I was dragged out of classes early on in elementary and in junior high. When I was very little, I had braces on my legs for a year and a half to correct the walking problem, you know, I had, I had issues. Um, so when I got to Boston, it was, you know, it really was kind of tough for me to fit in. I, and I took refuge and solace in my studies. I don't think I was the brightest bulb going to BU. It didn't come naturally to me. So I studied, I mean, I read and I memorized and I would write notes and I would Cut down the notes till I would just have words that would set things off in my mind. I and I wrote well, which was great. And in the university, because a lot of my exams were handed blue books, and we were just told to fill them. So you so you, I,
0: you you did do well enough
1: to aspire. Did you want to only go to Harvard Law? Well, that's what I was told by my peers and my professors when it was time to think about it. I had worked for. Governor Bob Graham, who was a Harvard alumni, and Bob Graham told me to set my sights high. Uh, I had known the Vice Dean William Bruce at Harvard Law School, who said, We'd love to have you here, son. I think you're the, you know, Harvard law material. I had recommendations from President John Silber, who was president of Boston University, that says, Well, I can guarantee a bright bulb like you can do well anywhere. Think about Harvard. Go ahead and apply. And you did and i did and you fully expected to get in i was you know i was actually at the point where i was going to start looking for spaces around in cambridge uh around the university sure in harvard square so what was it like when you got that letter was it april was it december Uh, it was around april or may um and it was a waitlist letter and i was devastated i was thinking maybe should i reapply somewhere uh what should i do uh I have to say, honestly, my Crohn's was very active. I was on a high dose of prednisone, which would lead me to periods of euphoria and depression. Uh, but I still felt I was a great candidate. Uh, I had, as I said, I had very strong letters, very high grades, very good LSAT scores. And I couldn't see how they would not select me. They would not notice you know, what a great guy and candidate I would be. And I shouldn't have anything to worry about.
0: I see the speech that you wrote and gave as salutatorian in May of 1977 um, on the importance what is the value of an education, the real world value of an education. It must have been uh, deeply ironic to you with your parents watching out there. You didn't have a gig. I think uh, maybe you were going to just take a summer gig and think about reapplying to law school or picking up the pieces. but. You know, you write on the margin that your your Crohn's was really flaring up, and uh, you're on really on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And I want you to kind of walk me through that experience. On the one hand, here you are, like you know, le- you're giving a speech to all your contemporaries out there, all the rich kids from the five boroughs, all the people who had multiples of the you know resources and and uh, benefits and accolades that you did that they could parlay going
1: in, uh, but there was very little vindication in that. Well, you know. Here I was, you know, graduation day, my parents said it was the only time they could afford to come up and see me in Boston. My dad didn't have a suit. And I remember they afforded to stay at the Copy Plaza Hotel. And they were so proud of me. And I knew I wasn't going anywhere after graduation. My dad, who believed in working hard and gave me this vision and this, his vision of the American dream, believed I was going to accomplish great things in my life. You know, I was, you know, I was a typical Jewish kid. I was groomed either for law school or med school. You know, when I was in uh, sixth grade, I think they gave me an attache case uh, once for uh, Hanukkah and said, well, you're a little Perry Mason. Why was it the end for you, though?
0: See, this is what I don't understand is, is it the, you know, a waitlist letter, one, you could have played the waitlist, and two, if it didn't work out, you had a stronger case applying, you know, following up next year. Maybe you you used the year to do another internship in D.C. or something like that. Were you were you so heartbroken that that was just not a possibility? Why was it so the end of the world for you?
1: Well, because I so strongly, and as I said, I think part of it was um, I was overinflated on the on that I believed I was going to be picked up in the first draft. I had talked to my debate coach, uh, Kay Hodge whose actual title was the legal counsel to the president's office. And Kay, who was a debater from Georgetown, said, let me set you up with a friend of mine who's at Harvard, a law school professor, and why don't you talk to him about your application? I was dying to meet him. I just wanted to get it out and find out what was going on. Well, the person Kay had me talk to was uh, turned out to be Larry Tribe, who, as you probably know, was uh, you know President Obama's constitutional law professor. I believe mm-hmm. it was his first or second year teaching at Harvard Law. Sure. And Professor Tribe said, "Look, Owen, you know, here's your case," and he laid out my case. You know, 4.0, Phi Beta Kappa, summa cum laude, debate team. You know, Governor Graham, William Bruce from Harvard. You know, that looks great, doesn't it? And I go, yeah. I said. Well, what's wrong? And he said, well, look, 1977, guess what? You heard of the Bakke reverse discrimination case? We're taking a closer look at applications this year. And, you know, personally, you know, for the 500 places, we get 5,000 applications, and, you know, half of them are probably kids just like you with 4.0 averages. And, you know, we don't really consider Boston University to be, you know, a top-tier school. You know, you're just another white, middle-class Jewish kid from Florida. And, you know, he actually had said, look, if you wait a year, reapply, and he even offered me a chance to work on his constitutional law treaties to do some historical research, he tried to help me get in on the second year. You know, I didn't hear much of that conversation. I just realized I wasn't getting in. I didn't understand that the playing field wasn't level like I thought it would be. Uh, you know, as I said, neither one of my parents went to college, though so they had no clue what to expect, let alone what it was like to apply to a law school. And I was completely disillusioned. Uh, the period between May and when I finally got back to Miami is a blur. I got back, I believe, and this is when I say believe, I believe I did my you know, experience some sort of breakdown. I got back. Uh, maybe towards the end of August or September. I had called a friend. My parents never came to pick me up at the airport. Um, well, I don't under, wait,
0: hold on. But what happened after graduation? What happened after you gave that speech? And you walked down and there's this big lawn and, you know, Comav right there by the river.
1: I remember going out, taking my parents, who went out to, as most people did, the Anthony's for lobster dinner. I uh, went back to the Copley Hotel with them. I didn't really explain to them what my situation was, they were, they had a belief I would be in law school
0: in September. Did your dad say, what what son, just buck up, just play the wait list? Did he give you any advice on the margin, like, listen, I I raised you to be tough, you know we're not cut out like other people, Uh, we might have to go
1: back twice, but I expect you to be persistent? My dad, unfortunately, didn't say that to me. My dad didn't, and this was maybe one of the Biggest letdowns in my life. My dad didn't know what to say to me. Um, I knew knew he had a friend, uh, not really a friend, it turned out not a friend, but uh, an attorney that worked for my dad's company who had a chair at Harvard Law. I had asked my dad, you think you'd call him in Atlanta and maybe he can call somebody? My dad called and unfortunately we found out he wasn't really a friend and didn't want to make the phone call to Harvard. And I, I came home, you know, it was, there was a little bit of like, you know, you know, you know, you know, try and be happy you have next year, think ahead kind of thing. But I was brutalized, you know, I felt I was sodomized by that point. And I came to Miami to lick my wounds. And at the same time, your older brother, um, he had, he had, uh, was he in law school? Well, my brother's three years older. My brother went to Gainesville, good school. University of Florida. University of Florida. He didn't know what he wanted to do. I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. My brother took the LSAT as a senior. He took it as a fluke. Got accepted a University of Florida law school. Attended law school. Um, so when I had got back to Miami, he was still in law school, finishing up. Uh, a year or so later. He had graduated, started working as a state's attorney, first in Orlando, and then he came down to Miami, I believe by 79 or 1980. To be a public prosecutor. To be a public prosecutor for Janet Reno. Janet uh, Reno. Uh, I met Janet a number of times. In fact, I had tried to dance with her at my brother's (laughs) wedding. So listen, this
0: sets up the next chapter, though. Full disclosure, in honor of Passover, we present The Wicked Son, the story of Owen Bann. Stay with us. Owen Band, take us to the winter of 1977, you're licking your wounds, you're back in Miami, you're living uh, with your parents reluctantly in North Miami Beach while your brother is a cub prosecutor under Janet Reno?
1: Right, my brother first started actually in the organized crime division, which you know not much happens on the state level. Um, And I was licking my wounds, I think if... You can relate to uh, the character in *The Graduate*. I was like Dustin Hoffman, floating on a raft in my actually in my neighbor's pool because we didn't have a pool. We're the only ones on the block that probably didn't. Um, thinking, what am I going to do with my life? You know, and nobody came up to me and you know said the magic words plastic. Uh, so I had to start thinking about what it did I want to do. My parents said to me at this point, hey, son, you know, how long are you just going to hang out at the house? Uh, you really need to get a job or do something.
0: Were you were you just in your bedroom with the door closed?
1: Uh, no, I liked the sun. I was actually laying in the backyard uh, playing with our Irish setter. But I, you know, I really hadn't talked to many people. Uh, certainly didn't have really any friends or real friends that I formed from. Boston University. Was your brother?
0: Was your brother advising you? Was he pulling you off to the side? Was he taking you out to dinner?
1: You know, my brother and I really weren't close. There was an intense sibling rivalry. Uh, I was the one in high school getting great grades, and it was like Mike will be more like your younger brother Owen. Uh, And you know, I was the one you know in college winning debate tournaments, uh, getting written up in the Boston University newspaper. I had published about six or seven. Uh, Book reviews and professional journals my parents loved it. I mean I was the favorite son I have to admit it and I think there was a natural resentment on my brother's part that you know I was I was a star Uh, And then things shifted
0: now talk about things shifting uh, and everybody out there listening to this, I'm cribbing from notes that, that uh, Owen meticulously put together in a, in a kind of like a nice Kinko's binder, the, the mysterious story of uh, Owen Band's uh, route from summa cum laude to the present. Um, you were on a speedboat, uh, what, at the middle of the night with a duffel full of uh, guns, uh, moving, well, moving marijuana. I mean, I, it, it, how did that happen? From right. the
1: pool, from the pool to that? Let me explain parents being parents they wanted me to get a job and I didn't know what I wanted to do I mean I thought about it uh, something I never told you I, I had taken a job briefly with the John Elliot blood bank in Miami as a representative they were moving to a voluntary blood donor system and the job basically was convincing people that were donating blood all these years that hey keep doing it uh, the credit we said you were giving—it's uh, a long story—but uh, it was a job basically PRing for the blood bank, lying to the, you know donors that uh, to keep donating blood that they're going to get credit for it. I didn't like the job; I felt it was living a lie and it was being deceitful, and I left. And uh, what did I do? One day I was home. Uh, actually, a friend of mine from high school came over. Uh, we were smoking a joint wrapped in vanilla in a banana rolling paper and, uh, on the match box it said, become a bartender. And I thought, well, this might be a great solution to get out of the house. I won't have to be around at nights, not see my parents. So I enrolled in bartending school in North Miami beach. You got this gig. I still want to take you back to
0: that speedboat because that's right. where, really, if you broke bad, at what point? At what point did you convince yourself? You know what? Yeah, I can do this. It's one thing to, you know, to to get your pals in in uh, North Miami Beach and Atlanta and Long Island dime bags, and this is the 70s, and I'm not apologizing for that era. It's another thing to go, you know, really into the heart of of late 1970s narco trafficking Miami.
1: Well. It turned out the first bartending job I had was at a club called Club Alexandre, uh, which was one of the first Cuban nightclubs, uh, predated the mutiny as far as the cocaine and marijuana crowd. Uh, and I was very like, you know, as a likable guy. Uh, customers came in, everybody from bankers uh, to cocaine and marijuana kingpins. And the guys liked me, and I hung out with them, you know, after work. And uh, someone said to me, "Hey, uh, Julio, you know, you know, Owen's a great guy. Why don't we let him give him a chance to make some money?" And I was laughing. I know what these guys did. You know, they'd have one Chevis, one Black Label, and leave a hundred dollars and say keep it. Uh, so I wasn't naive to what was going on at the bar. I mean, you know, we had a guy come in with his pet leopard and let it run around on the dance floor. You know. So I knew what these guys were about and, you know, I thought about it and, you know, I wasn't – I was kind of scared about reapplying to law school. I was afraid of becoming, you know, a failure again. And, you know, I was kind of envious of what I saw was going around. Wait, wait. You were scared of
0: reapplying to law school where you almost got into Harvard Law, but you were not scared of accepting the gig to do the following. Tell us what you did. All right. Uh, the gig itself set up the scene, the evening, the opportunity, right. the mandate. Uh, it was middle
1: of the week. It was a, it Was a what they would call a smuggler's moon, uh, and I had left with some guys on a, I think it was a thirty six foot scarab open, fisherman out of the uh, Coconut Grove Marina. Uh, we went out practically to the Gulf Stream. Uh, When we got out there, there was about six or seven other speedboats waiting in line to help unload. Uh, It was primarily marijuana from a freighter. Uh, We attached a cable from the freighter to the boat, and they were lowering down bales of marijuana. They were, I'd say, they weighed about 50 to 70 pounds each. Uh, There was also a couple silver, they look like photography uh, briefcases, which I expected was either coke or money. And, you know, I was kind of exhilarated. I was kind of scared. I didn't know what to do. The guys I was with, I mean, I had gone out drinking with them a bunch of times and I liked them. I mean, they made me feel, they actually made me feel for the first time that I fit in somewhere, but these guys are not these guys are not summa cum laude types, right? They're not. You know, one L- guy... LSAT guys. No, they weren't. I mean, they were working class Cuban kids, kids. They were. we were all probably in our early twenties. Um, one of them later went on to actually went to uh, the uh, flight school across from Miami, uh, the Baker School, and learned how to fly planes to Columbia. But you know, we we're all kids. It was an adventure. I didn't. Know that this was going to be the so you
0: beginning. were there, you were there to lift bales essentially, or you were there as a lookout. You were there, I mean, you, I, you write I, in I your notes helping. that you had
1: a duffel full of did you even know how to use a weapon? Not at that point. My dad worked for ASCAP in New Jersey and then later in Florida. And if you worked for ASCAP, which represented songwriters and licensing, they would license sure, restaurants sure. and hotels. And you know the guys he had met in Jersey, all last names ended in a vowel. Okay, understood. But who taught you? I mean, they just handed you a
0: duffel bag full of semi-automatic was, weapons and, and well, told you to I get was, on a speedboat.
1: I, I was in the line. I was the second or third guy in the line, and I was helped stacking the uh, bales. Were there
0: explicit the instructions to you, Owen? Listen, you're going to get my back, or you're just going to be a lookout? What? What did they, they? Even if they said it over beers or joints, we do you recall? Say,
1: I was. I was told we're going to unload a boat. And I said, you know, okay and I I I think I assumed the, because of who the people was and one of the guys, you know, uh albero uh, that it was gonna be marijuana. I mean, I I as I said, I to the very last minute I had reservations about doing it. How did your
0: Crohn's deal with this? If you if you were susceptible to having <laughs> you know, intestinal I mean, I, distress. I,
1: I, I, I would have to say I was having probably the best time of my life attending bar. I mean, it was stress-free. Uh, I had a girlfriend for the first time in my life, even though she was, you know, an escort. Uh, I was making some money. I was living away from my parents, uh, and I was, I was, I was, I'm relatively healthy. Um, and when these guys, you know, you know, enlisted me into this assignment, I thought about it, um, you know, and I said, you know, something. Um, I'm looking around, and everyone seems to be thriving at it, you know. Uh, you didn't read about the massive arrests or anything else at that point. And I said, yeah, let me go. I'll try it, you know. So tell me how the evening ended up. What happened? You offloaded the motherships and the speedboats? We offloaded it off, uh, pretty close to, uh, our assignment was to go to a house with a dock off Coco Plum. A stash house? Uh... I guess it was a stash. Yeah, it was a stash. So, was a house with a marina? It was a house, and it was with the, the. It had a boat garage. Oh wow! Where we pulled in, and we were able to unload in a garage, which was it was amazing. It was a great property. It was. Uh, Undescribable. So you guys
0: weren't followed by anybody, or Coast Guard, or police, or anything.
1: Weren't followed, but I'll tell you something. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was. I probably needed a second pair of underwear by the time we got the boat back to the dock. Uh, You know, it was was scary. We were racing the boat back at a high speed. We had all this weight, and we probably had over or close to a thousand pounds of pot and, you know, duffels and what have you, and we unloaded it. You know, I mean. I didn't know what to expect. It was like you know, see ya, see ya, see ya. And we all left. You know, I went home. I don't don't think I went to sleep that night. Uh, you know, and uh, I got a. It was still a day or two before I had to go back to bartending. I got a call and it says, Hey, you know, I got something for you. And I went to see the guys. Honestly, no one said to me what the dollar amount I was going to get paid for this little misadventure, but. What it turned out to be, I was paid $25,000. In an in envelope? A, in a Manila envelope. What, in and, 20s and 50s? What was that? Yeah, they were Primarily in hundreds. I mean, there were some 50s in there also, but- What were you getting paid for that bartending job? Well, as I said, it, w- it was uh, kind of a gangster bar. And I mean, there were, were nights I could make $500 or $1,000 in a night. You know, if the right guy came in, if Albero came in, or even the legitimate guys like, uh, you know, Manny, I don't know if I want to mention his last name. It was a banker. Uh, would leave $50 tip or something on a sure, check. Sure, sure. So, so fast
0: forward for me. When did you first try cocaine?
1: All right. Uh, <laughs> it, w- it, w- it was during that period when I was at Club Alexandre. Um, you know, I mean, I would be handed constantly throughout the night bills fo- folded up with cocaine in it. And I'd laugh, and, you know, I don't think I... Well, I know I didn't do the first couple envelopes I was handed or dollar or bills filled with coke. Uh, but then I noticed something strange. The guys with cocaine, even the ugly guys with cocaine had all the women, you know? I mean, honestly, uh, you know, I had a, you know, a semi girlfriend and, uh, it was amazing to see these guys come in and, you know, girls would flock to them like rock stars. They'd get up, they'd walk to the table, they would talk, Then a couple, like, the girls would get up together, go to the ladies' room for 20 minutes and come out. And I said, hey, you know, there's something going on here, you know? I mean, uh, you don't have to be a genius to see that, you know, I mean, this particular substance, uh, you know, was better than an American Express card. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, I mean, believe me, this kid didn't pop his cherry until he was like 19 years old. So, you know, this was a, a major elevation. So I understand. Did you um one? When did you try it? Was it
0: at the club? Was it with these guys? It
1: it was actually with a couple of the club owners. Uh, it was one night after work. There was a guy, another name I won't mention, whose father was a former president of Cuba, who we would go to an after-hours club called Sammy's, which was opened about 8 in the morning. We'd leave the club about 4 or 5. We'd close the club. We'd go to Sammy's till about 7 or 8. We'd come out in suits and sunglasses because kids would be whizzing by on bicycles going to the beach, and we were trying to make it home at 7 or 8 a.m. Let me tell you, also, the cocaine seemed to make the work easier. I mean, I would... You know, get home, I'd be coked up, I would sleep, I'd get up, I'd do a little coke before work, uh, and it became, you know, kind of habit forming. And did you take on more gigs immediately? I would have to
0: think that being handed a $25,000 envelope, of cold, hard cash, made you want the next gig, maybe the adrenaline
1: rush. Well, it wasn't like they were saying, hey, we got a job for you next week. I let them know I was available, uh, I kind of liked it, and you know, but, you know, then again, I wasn't really spending money at that point. I was saving it, and, you know, I was – I had to say I was a little scared. I mean, you know, I, I definitely had the adrenaline rush and high, but, you know, there was a side of me that's saying, hey, you know, uh, you know, you may think you're one of these guys. Or you may think you're a gangster, but, you know, I'm that I'm that Robin Farzad, a nice Jewish kid from North Miami Beach, you know, who had Rabbi Lipschitz. So I wasn't, you know, hardcore, although – I thought I was, and um, you know, things progressed until the next opportunity arose. When was the next opportunity? Um, you know, it was probably about four months later, it wasn't overnight, in fact, uh, I had gotten in a little trouble with the club with the owner, uh, because I was getting to be, I guess, too friendly with the customer, so to speak. Uh, and he, they said, "Look, I want you to decide if you want to be a customer or you decide if you want to work here." And I kind of laughed, and I, you know I was making a lot of money, but I always thought, "Well, you know, I'm going to make money now." Um, and eventually, uh, about the time they asked me to leave the gig, uh, there was an operation called oper- a money- laundering operation called Black Tuna. involved a couple of the club owners, uh, and the club was shut down. So I think uh, me leaving the club at the time they asked me to leave, uh, it would have happened within a month or two anyway.
0: When did you feel like, you know what, I can freelance. I don't need to be given a W-whatever form. I can be paid in cold, hard cash. I have, you know, I could fake it until I make it with these guys. I met enough people at this uh, lounge
1: at the speakeasy to get uh, more smuggling gigs well it was it was like well, you know, I mean, as I said, I was saving my money i I was working three or four nights a week at the main nights tending bar I mean it was they were trying to make it like a studio fifty four they made me wear believe it or not, if you saw my legs now, I was wearing hot pants and like a basketball shirt. Uh, I was a good looking kid if I was you know. I think I gave you one of the pictures with, uh... Sure, I'll uh, post it. Okay. <laughs> uh, sure but, it's... you know, I quickly understood what was going on. I ha- And, you know, I had friends that would occasionally come down from the Northeast. I had a lot more friends that went to Columbia University than BU. And they would come in. First thing they'd do is call Owen and said, Hey, Owen, uh, we hear there's this magical, you know, this wonderful substance called cocaine. And would you know anybody to call? And that got me thinking. Uh, these friends of mine all came, you know, very rich families, uh, steel company owners, uh, you name it. And they come down here and they say, Look, you know, what can you do for me? We have a party on the 4th of July. You know, we want like, what does an ounce go for? Uh, Can you get us two or three ounces? You know, we're all going to go in, chip in, have this party. And, you know, I, you know, I, I was the man with the plan. I knew guys and I was close to guys where I was getting below wholesale type of prices. I mean, there are a couple guys when I was at their house would take a soup ladle and reach into a kilo and you know, grab loose powder or break off, you know, a size of cocaine that was half the size of my face and saying, We like you, man. Here, take it. Walk out, no charge. Okay? Wow. Hold that right. thought, Owen. Hold that thought because when we come back, we're gonna talk
0: about uh, the, the the fleeting phase of your life when you were a kingpin who didn't care about money. That it was you said you never looked at the right side of the menu. Full disclosure, we're talking to the wicked son in honor of Passover. Stay with us. paraphrase the band Asia, Owen oh, Band, so now you find yourself in 81, 1981, and cocaine's a hell of a drug in Miami, and everybody is talking about cocaine. Everybody wants to buy cocaine. Money is no object. Condos being bought for cash, no money down. Um, how did you suddenly become a kingpin?
1: Well, I, you know, honestly, from the people I knew, I was, as they would say in The Godfather Two, I was small potatoes. Uh, I made money. I'm not going to kid myself, but you know, I knew guys that made over two billion dollars. So where do I fall on the scale? So how would it work, right? You talk about uh, these smuggling
0: opportunities. A lot of your corridor of opportunity was what the what was it? The Delta Shuttle back then was it the Pan Am or Eastern Shuttle?
1: Uh, Eastern was a, or National a big, Airlines. Well, Eastern was primarily our biggest. National was good too, but Eastern, we had a lot of friends that were flight attendants male and female So what was smuggling like back in the days I
0: was told that that Eastern Shuttle some people could fly from Miami to Boston for $19 each way and the flight attendants would come around with this this canister and actually break $20 bills for people
1: and there was very little surveillance and you know there were, I mean there was no surveillance I mean I used to fly under everybody else's name there was no ID check I used to fly under a good friend of mine from Boston's name who uh, my friend Gary, who at one point when I was under investigation, uh, they had found plane tickets with Gary's name on it. And I had explained to him, well, I was trying to get you the frequent flyer miles to get you and your girlfriend to Europe. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, there were you know there were times when I would fly to New York, uh, do a deal in LaGuardia, or a lot of times to a JFK, uh, the a Ronald Reagan airport, and do something in the parking lot. And fly... Back with the same flight crew, you know, on a turnaround, an hour and a half, two hours, or whenever the what plane was. What would you put in a duffel bag, later. a suitcase? How would you pack this stuff? Were there dogs there? There could have been dogs. I never experienced dogs, but I didn't put it in my bags. The flight attendants, could get their bags onto the plane. They would go around the metal detectors. Mm. So what we would do is we would pay them to take the cocaine in their bags up to whatever city they were flying to, whether it was Washington, whether it was Boston, whether it was New York, and transport it for us. Problem was, a lot of times these bags came up short because the flight attendants figured out how to get into the stash somewhere in the restroom on the way up there. Uh, We solved that problem by getting bags from Ray Corona at Sunshine Bank and putting the keys in bags with a lock. So the uh, we didn't have that shrinkage problem anymore. Shrinkage, as they called
0: it. Right, shrinkage. So let me understand this. What were the economics of a typical trip, right? You talk about a $100 ticket, $200 ticket in 1980, 81? Eh,
1: around $200 on Eastern, uh, round trip. What kind of volume were you moving, and what were the what were the stakes? Well, you know, I wasn't, you know, there were some big trips. I mean, there was one trip that, was mine, that I actually landed on Bob Graham's cattle ranch in Florida. But for the most part, um, it would be a couple keys at a time where I had actually taken two kilos, made them to four kilos. I was paying probably $300 uh, an ounce, and the ounce would go for $2,000 in New York, which was doubled because I would cut it, so it would be $4,000 on a $300 investment. And, you know, these were just, I mean, it wasn't inner city guys. These were guys with, you know, businesses and industry. And, you know, I would go down to houses on the Jersey Shore uh, for parties when they would take, one guy would take six or eight ounces. They were Doctors in Philadelphia. I mean, these were, you know, nobody's scary. And they liked me because I was that nice Jewish kid, you know. My name wasn't Carlito, or I wasn't Negreto. And they liked me and I fit in. And I would go to the parties and I would go to weddings and I would go to bar mitzvahs. How much were you clearing a week? Yeah, well, it wasn't a weekly thing. I mean, on a trip, I could make 30000 $50,000. And then I may not do it for a while. There was a time, however, with one of my partners we were flying to Washington, D.C., maybe two or three times a week. Uh, And it was going on probably for six or eight months like crazy where we would just fly up and back and fly up and back, up and back. And... uh, we decided to take a break in New York. We were in a limousine and all these Cubans guys love to play The Godfather on the cassette decks. So we're listening to the theme song of The Godfather. We had a call saying they needed us back in DC. Uh I said, look, I'm burnt out. My friend went, my friend George went. He flew from Miami to DC. And he actually had flown, he was giving me the frequent fire miles. And he wound up selling to an NFL player named Tony Peters. The year after the Redskins won the Super Bowl, he was arrested. I didn't find out until Monday Night Football when Howard Cosell said that Tony Peters wouldn't be playing, but he was arrested with an Argentinian national. They called Miami and found out what happened. Uh, and that was the end of the bar, you know, Washington, D.C. enterprise. My but friend what was Ron-
0: going on simultaneously is your brother starts hunting a lot of the dopers like you in miami did he have any idea that you were in this line of work
1: well this is his thing my brother knew i guess he kind of found kind of had an idea when i would show up in a new mercedes or when i had a porsche 911 although i don't know if he had seen that but you know i'd go up for thanksgiving or passover i remember at one passover i was wearing a coke spoon around my neck and my brother made a big deal about it calling me an and cussing me out in front of the other family members. You know, I was wearing a $25,000 Rolex uh, president with a three-carat uh, diamond bezel. So, I mean, you know, uh, he knew I wasn't, you know, exactly tending bar anymore. And, you know, he called me an asshole. And, you know, um, it, as I said, it was, it, was, it was strange. I used to spell my last name differently. I used to spell it like James Bond, B-O-N-D because i didn't want anyone reading the miami herald to see michael Band, prosecutor uh, arrested this drug dealer or something because you know he handled some big cases including uh... the woman who was responsible for the cocaine cowboy shooting in dadeland uh... the godmother uh... Cristiano de blanco was his big big case uh... so you know we didn't Talk a lot. But was there this element of getting back at your brother, right?
0: But because of the law school thing, the law school rematch kind of didn't work. And you, you're you suggesting that it was a bit of kind of rub it in for, for you being the golden child when he was younger. But then now you were able to rub it in as this kind of guy with the flashy Rolex and the
1: Coke spoon around your neck. Were you thinking about the LSAT at all? Well, you know, I... Didn't at that point. I mean, you know, I had given up the dream of law school. I told myself, "Look, I still had Crohn's. I had other health issues. Did I really want to go to law school for three years?" What? Hold you know? up, hold up, though. But if you sure. wanted to, every a lot of people defer law school.
0: Uh, you had all those papers. There all those recommendations. You didn't have to tell anyone. Well, in my interregnum uh, since I last applied, I was a budding cocaine kingpin. You could have gone back. But was it at this point? Why would you? I mean, did you see yourself in a everything that you wrote about everything in debating, everything in political science and Larry Tribe and Harvard Law? Was that all just gone after you you know became a prolific dealer?
1: Well, it became less and less a reality that I was going to give this up and go back for law school. You know, I had a lot of friends in Miami that were criminal defense lawyers and they were cowboys. They were, you know, on the same level as some of the drug dealers. We used to hang out and we'd laugh, we'd have a good time, we'd snort coke, you know, in the men's room at Katz or the Mutiny. And I said, you know, this was probably would have been the kind of guy I might have turned out to be, you know? but. You know, why give it up now? You know, what am I going to do? Go to law school for 3 years, go to University of Miami or go to some middle level law school, come back, you know, start like my brother did in the state attorney's office or public defender's office when I'm making this kind of money and I'm banking it. I said, you know, I said, look, you know, I mean, hey, I I honestly believe that, look, the system wasn't fair. I mean, the idea of the American dream, you know, the inspiration from the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, you know, in the pursuit of life, liberty, and and the, you know, American dream wasn't what I was getting, okay? I got screwed. You know, I got the big corkscrew and you know. Yeah, but and... wait a minute.
0: You you did it, but you didn't. You ended up in this paradise. You ended up you ended up having money that your parents never had. You had the call option of going back to academia. Certainly, you were still in fact, you could afford a lot of the things that you couldn't before. You could very easily go and I don't know. Uh spruce up your application, hire a consultant, but you were so soured on the American dream at that point because you got deferred from Harvard
1: Law. Well, it was that and it's how the system played out and you know, I just said, look, you know, there are shortcuts to the American dream. You know, I wasn't look, I wasn't Jay Gatsby, you know, in West Egg living that american dream and money was the only issue you know even from nineteen eighty one i was working on a creative writing program well not the program at that point but i was taking creative writing classes at florida international university i said well one day i'm going to write about this one day you know i'm going to go in i'm going to be nick caraway i'm going to stand on the outskirts look at you know the gatsby's mansion and i'm going to write that american novel and i believed that you know and i Spent 15 years pursuing an MFA, you know, studying with some great writers, uh, you know, James Hall and John Dufresne, that you know taught me the craft of writing. And I had an antiquarian book business for 15 years until Amazon came and wiped that out. I mean, was cocaine wasn't the only part of me. I mean, I was kind of, you know, I was always zealot-like. I mean, I can blend in with whatever crowd I was like. You know, I looked at myself like maybe Odysseus coming from the Trojan War on a long journey, but eventually I would reach that Ithaca, you know, and it, it never happened. I just got waylaid. I mean, yeah, you know. I mean, I honestly, I, I loved the lifestyle I was living. I mean, money wasn't an issue, there were women, there was girls, there were dreams, there were visions. I mean, Jack Kerouac time, baby, all the way. And I had a great time,
0: you know? Owen Band, uh, as you talk about this and you look back at that period, what stopped it? Obviously the feds tightened the screws, it was the Miami Vice era. Uh, You had a major car accident, and your Crohn's issues constantly got you back in the hospital. If you fast forward to your New York existence, when I personally met you, uh, I believe it was in 2008, you walked into. The Barkey Green Grass, on the Upper West Side, and we we had some kippered salmon together. Best um, kippered salmon there is. <laughs> but you were you were on Medicaid. You've been hospitalized several times. You've had issues with depression. Um, you've had uh, ongoing issues with substance abuse. Some of your some of your girlfriends, I think one you told me was an escort, had a heroin problem. Do you ever look back and say, again, I was at a fork in the road where I got a wait list at Harvard Law, and then fast forward, I was living the the. Um, kind of the benign tony montana dream in miami how did you end up on the fringes in manhattan uh in new york and living in an efficiency
1: and on the government dole all right well as you mentioned in 89 i was in a very bad car crash um and also around that time there were mandatory sentences i mean half the people i knew from the marialitos the guys at the mutiny became snitches um and i was I almost died. I mean, I was with a friend of mine, my friend Jerry, uh, who has, was, in fact, I had a Crohn's attack the night we were out. He was driving my Mercedes SL up the beach in Fort Lauderdale and we ran into the back of the garbage truck at 40 miles an hour. I was, I don't remember how many surgeries after or facial reconstruction. Uh, I couldn't look in the mirror for over a year and a half, uh, but it was a long time to walk away from the business and what I was doing. When I finally did feel well enough to get in touch with people, you know, I didn't know who I could trust anymore. People I had known and I had worked with. Some had made enough money and retired. Some were going to jail. Some I was told to avoid. In fact, there was one guy, God bless my brother, had told me keep away that he was an informant. You know? Scared the s*** out of me because I was getting ready to do a big deal with him. Did you ever circle
0: back with your brother? You
1: know, I'd... No. Things have really never gotten back the way they should be. And, you know, we, he's reached out for me. I reached out for him. Uh, you know, he got married. He had kids. Our lifestyles were divergent for over 20 years. Uh, we would only see each other once in a while, whether it was for a Passover at my parents' house when they retired up to Boca, you know, or Thanksgiving. I think I had gone to maybe two or three Thanksgivings at his house, you know, on Miami Beach. Uh, but you know, we never, we never grew close after that. I just think we had, you know, blazed two different paths. I kind of, you know, Dante said, you know, somewhere along the way, I find myself in a deep wood for I've lost the right path. I was on, you know, the wrong path for a long time in my life. So a lot of people are going to hear this, Owen, and we have
0: about three, four minutes left. Um, your story obviously is a winding, circuitous route, and we can fill up several episodes uh, with it, and we can be here all night uh, and accept huge tips of uh, you know cocaine wrapped in hundred dollar bills. But um, if if you want people to hear something out there, kind of a lesson learned, if you want your brother to hear something, if you want the dean of Harvard Law to hear something, if you want the 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 college visionary, uh, the starry eyed thinker to hear something, what would you what would you say? I'd say,
1: you know, here was a good kid who had a fair expectation of what the world had to offer, who had a setback, and instead of taking the wrong route or the wrong fork in the road, you know, he should have reapplied himself. Uh, I think in my case, you know, illness was a big factor, uh, and I'm sorry I wound up going the route I took, um, but I did. You know, I can't make any apologies for it. I'm sorry that you know I hurt my parents. I'm sorry that I wasn't close to my brother. I'm sorry that i um, in a position where I am in my life at this point. Uh, I'm sorry I never got married. I'm sorry I never had kids. Um, there's a lot of regrets in my life. And I would tell anybody uh, that would think that there's an easy route to the American dream uh, that there isn't. Uh, If you work hard and apply yourself, sometimes it's not enough. Sometimes there are breaks. But even if you don't get the breaks, try and make the breaks. Go back and back and back and knock your head against the wall until something does open up for you. And don't try and take the easy way out like I did.
0: Now, Owen, I'm going to hold you to this because you're about to crack a six-handle. You're going to be 60 soon. And uh, you can remember being 20. Uh, You can remember in those photos from NMB High on the wrestling team being you know, 15, 16. Uh, it's not over for you yet. Um, you, 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 you keep a hand in all these different projects. You're literary. Once you heal up, you know, suddenly you have this snazzy new USB microphone. If you're not, if you don't have use of your hands fully, if you have muscular issues of the Crohn's. You could do a lot of this stuff via Skype and via podcast, your oral history, and I'm going to hold you to this now, Owen, because you're on the record. Uh, you are going to print your memoirs, you're going to have them uh, uh, come out, you're going to post them to Amazon, you're going to post them to PDF, uh, PDF, whatever it is, you're going to tweet them out, and um, the world is going to get to know uh, more about your story, and you're going to learn about yourself, and other people are going to learn about you, so uh, promise me you'll do that. I promise. Owen Band. Formerly the wicked son, ahead of another Passover, I uh, implore you not to eat too much matzah, especially if you're risking Crohn's flare-ups. And Robin, thanks for being supportive and being my friend. You are the man, Owen. Full disclosure, thank you so much for listening to us. You can join us on iTunes, SoundCloud, WRIR, every Wednesday morning at 9, ahead of the takeaway. And you know what, Owen, Uh, you can even burn a bunch of these CDs and hand them out in Times Square. There's no shame in that, man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Rob. Full disclosure, we'll be back with you next week.